Good morning. I see the tithing message last week did not run you off. You returned. So uh, about a tenth returned. (laughs) Well, that would make sense. All right. So grab your Bible. Go to Malachi chapter three. We are going to get a little complicated this morning. And so um, some people get really excited when I say that. So I didn't say nerdy. I was going to say nerdy, but I decided that sounded wrong. I said complicated, but I do mean nerdy. Let's just be honest. That's what I mean. So we have to learn a word um, going into this because it's going to affect how we interpret and how we read what's going on in Malachi. Now, really, if you want to become a student of scriptures, particularly Old Testament scriptures, you do need to be familiar with this concept, whether you remember the word or not. You need to be familiar with what we mean when we say eschatological. You ever heard that word before? All right, now, those of you who know the word, immediately think of what? End times prophecies specifically. It's, it's bigger than that. It includes that. That is a subcategory under what that term means. But here's the idea. Everything that happens in the Old Testament is not simply an event on a timeline that just happened. It's not just some isolated standalone thing that's happening. Rather, there is a timeline, and that timeline has a trajectory. It has a beginning, and it has an end. It has a conclusion. There's a, we could call it a story. Everything that happens in the scriptures is part of that grand story that is happening. Now, who wrote the details of the story that is unfolding in scripture? Okay, God, it wasn't a hard question. God wrote that story, and we watch it unfold as we go from the beginning to the end of the book. Now, as that happens, there are themes that come up throughout the story, consistent themes, consistent metaphors. There, there could be things that happen in cycles over and over and over again until the true thing comes. We see that a lot in the Old Testament, this idea of one's coming who's going to set things right. Well, we have a lot of characters in the Old Testament who look like they could be that person, but it's not. It's not fulfilled until who comes? Jesus comes. And then Jesus not only comes, he'll come again. And you see this sort of pattern happening over and over again. When you think about that trajectory of how the Bible story is unfolding, the direction it's going, and you think about how any given biblical passage is own that story or projects that story, kind of gives you foretastes of that story, then we would say that we need to read this eschatologically. We need to read it as it relates to the end, as it relates to the steps heading towards the end. And as we read Malachi, we've actually seen this come up already, but especially in the text we're reading this morning, we're going to see how Malachi is painting a picture of future events and super future events, and it all kind of rolls together as one. So if you think about it, if you're looking down the timeline, from within the timeline, how does it look to you? It's narrow and it's focused. If you were away from the timeline, looking at the scheme of things, everything, it's its own isolated event. You can see the sequence, you can see all of these things, but if you're in the middle of it, if you're in the tunnel, Looking at the light in the end, you only see this one thing focused towards one 
point. But that could be a really long tunnel. There could be a lot of little steps along the way, but we see the trajectory when we're looking from the inside. That's what's going to happen in Malachi this morning. We're looking eschatologically. We're looking toward the end, and we're going to see, we know from a New Testament perspective, that some of the events here happen over time, happen at different times, even though seemingly it looks like they may happen at the same time. So as we dive in, remember, everything we interpret, we need to look at and answer these questions from a long-term perspective. So just to jog your memory a little bit, Malachi mostly has been negative. God has been making accusations against his people. He's called them out for their offerings, for their sacrifices, for the way the priests were doing their sacrifice, doing their service, the way they even viewed their service. Last week, he called them out for not bringing in the full tithe into the storehouse. And now we're going to look at the final accusation and how it's all going to be pulled together. Now, you'll see this accusation has technically already been made. It's a little more clear and crisp in this passage. We're going to be in Malachi 3, 13. And we're going to work our way through the rest of the book this morning. So just remember, as we go in, um, verses and chapter numbers are arbitrary. They were added in later. So most, if you pull out a commentary, there'll always be a comment about chapter 4 starts in the middle of a thought, and there's no reason in the world that this should be a chapter 4. So why is it chapter 4? Because somebody made it chapter 4 one day, and we followed it ever since. There's no such thing as chapters and verses in the original writing of scripture. So really we're looking at the last single section of Malachi this morning. So Malachi 3:13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. In other words, God's saying he's been making all these accusations against them, but they have been making accusations against God. Now have we ever done that? Right? We know we shouldn't. It sounds bad if you word it that way. You ever point your finger at God and say, God, this is your fault? That happens within the first three chapters of Scripture. Adam does that. He says, God, that woman you gave me, that's what went wrong here. Now, was that a good idea for Adam, do you think? Job had a similar experience. We like to remember the first three, four chapters of Job, how he loses everything, suffers, and praises the name of the Lord, and then we skip the part where he gets frustrated. But during that frustrated part, He starts pointing his finger at God. I didn't deserve this. You've done wrong to me. I'm innocent here. You are at fault. Accusation against God. So what is the accusation in this case that God's people are making against God in this setting? So let's just remember where they are. This is the end of the Old Testament narrative. So they've gone into exile. Do you remember why they went into exile in the first place? What was God's reason for destroying his people? Their idolatry, they had sinned against them without repentance in spite of being warned by prophet after prophet. God sent them into exile. They've come back home. They've rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. And God seemingly did not show up again. The first time they built the temple, when Solomon dedicated the temple, God's presence manifested itself in a visual, literal way. They beheld the glory of God in that manifestation, filling the temple. They rebuild the temple, and the old people all cry. Not tears of joy, but tears of disappointment. And they look at their setting. They say, we've got this temple. It's a mediocre temple. 
It's not the glorious temple we'll have in the New Testament after it gets renovated. It's just this shack that we've rebuilt in this town that we've barely rebuilt. We have a horrible new place. We're not really free. We're back in our land. Yes, we have our worship. Yes, but the Persians still rule. They still tell us what to do. They tell us who can be king. It's only by God's favor given through the Persians to us that we have the freedom to worship at all. They look around the world. They see God treating them just like he treats anybody else. But what are they supposed to be? They're God's people. These are the Israelites. These are the ones that God promised to bless through Abraham. So much blessing that it would overspill into the nations and the nations would be blessed. And this is what God's people have said. But you say, have we spoken against you? How have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the prophet? <laughs> I mean, it's reading scripture. I can't be too upset, you know. <laughs> but I couldn't read and hear at the same time. It was throwing me off. Okay. Yeah, I'm telling you, if you're going to have an interruption, Scripture's not a bad way to go. Okay, where was I? <laughs> All right, so here's the accusation. Here's what they're saying, verse 14. This is God's people. This is what they're saying against God. It's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What profit is there in serving God? God. What had God promised them? If they honored him under the Mosaic Covenant, if they did what God asked, God would do what to them? It was a very tangible thing. He would bless them with tangible, literal, right here and now blessing. They had this as a promise, but yet they're saying, we do this. We've come back. We built the temple. We built the wall. We've gathered back as a nation, the few number of us, that tiny number that actually care, and yet nothing seems to change. What profit is there? And now we call the arrogant, blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Now, God told us to put him to the test in the previous paragraph. Remember what the context was there? Put me to the test with regard to what? Whether or not I'll bless you if you do the tithes and the offerings. And they've turned the question then. All right, well, those evil people, God, they're putting you to the test to see whether or not you will punish them. And we look around the world and we see these evil people doing evil things and how much do you punish them? It seems like you don't do it at all, yet we're trying and you're punishing us. That's the accusation that God's people are making against God. So there you go. Let's fill in the first blank. The accusation, that should be God, not good. God treats the righteous and the wicked the same. That's the accusation. God treats the righteous and the wicked the same. We see this accusation come up a lot in the Old Testament, actually. That God's people look around and say, well, weren't we supposed to be special? Weren't we supposed to be the beloved people? Weren't we supposed to be the ones you were taking special care of? But it seems like you're treating us the same way you treat everyone else. It's an interesting accusation. Let's just think about it for ourselves. Could we look across 
America, any part of the country really, any, any part of the nations, anywhere on the globe, and could we look at people and determine whether or not they were God's people based on how much monetary and physical blessings they received. So basically the accusation then is there's no direct correlation, God, between our blessings and whether or not people serve you. Because I can find plenty of wealthy people who hate you, plenty of wealthy people who run against you, plenty of people with perfect physical health who have nothing to do with the fear of the Lord. I can find Christians who are suffering, Christians who are suffering not because they're being persecuted. That'd be one thing. At least that's easy to sell, being a martyr for your faith. But what if you're not being a martyr? You're just dying of cancer. But we believe in you, God. Where's the blessing in that? What gain, what profit is there in the way you treat us? That's interesting. We're calling out that that's injustice. See how Jesus treats the same concept in the New Testament. Now, actually, it seems like it's a long way away. It's maybe 400 years later, but it's probably only four pages later in your Bible. Flip over to Matthew chapter 5. Just For me, it's literally, it's four pages. Four pages over. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus says. Telling us to love our enemies so that we'll be like our Father. See what he says in Matthew 5.45. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, is Jesus making an accusation against God that he's doing something wrong in that passage? No, he's giving us an example to follow. An example of what? Love. So what we call injustice, God not treating us all the same, we want to be blessed while they are cursed, God says not doing it that way is actually an example, a manifestation, if you will, of his Love, a manifestation of God's love. So the answer, the accusation was God treats the righteous and the wicked the same. The answer across the scheme of Scripture is, well, what you call injustice, God calls mercy. Mercy. All right, we'll unpack that a little more, but let's uh, stay in Malachi and keep working through the passage. Then... Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, what's interestingly interesting about this piece is it doesn't seem to fall in any particular historical narrative. It seems more like this is just a behind-the-scenes sort of conversation about how God is treating his people. It's kind of like this. God, you don't treat us all right. You're not blessing us like you should. You're blessing the wicked. You're cursing us. And God's saying, now, but I put your name in a book. I'm keeping tabs on who's mine and who's not. It says, they shall be mine, says the Lord. Well, who shall be his? Well, the people in that book. So he's going to write their names in a book and they shall be his. And in the day when I make up my treasured possession, 
and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. So God is saying, well, one day there will be a difference between the way I treat the righteous and the way I treat the wicked. Now, does that mean that day is now? Now, what's he getting at? That's in time's conversation towards the end trajectory. That's going to happen. God, next point, God knows who belongs to him and who does not. God knows who belongs to him and who does not. Those who fear his name, esteem his name. Now, with that in mind, let's go forward to Romans for just a minute. We're going to come back to Malachi, but I want to set the stage here a little bit. There was this tendency in the Old Testament to think if you were a Jew, did you fall in the righteous or the wicked category? The righteous category. If you weren't a Jew, which category did you fall into? The wicked category. Now, do you think, just a real simple question, you don't have to think too hard, do you think it was that cut and dry in the Old Testament? No. We have a tendency to do the same thing. We think people with the label Christian fall into the righteous category, and we think people without the label Christian fall into the wicked category. But you know, just based on the way I worded that, right? That it's not that simple, even today in our time. So, I want you to see what's going on in Romans chapter 3. This is one of my favorite passages. So he's making an argument here, and uh, the first seven chapters of Romans can be quite depressing, so I'm not trying to completely depress you here, but you do need to see what's going on. So he's asking a simple question. Does a Jew have an advantage in this scheme of salvation? Complicated answers, yes and no, yes and that. I mean, they have this heritage, but no, because that doesn't necessarily make it any better. So I want you to see what God says in verse 5. Paul has written, but if our righteousness serves to show, our unrighteousness, sorry, serves to show the unrighteousness of God, what shall we say? Now, there's a big elaborate argument going on, and here's what I want you to see, is that God is going to get glory whether you're the righteous or the wicked. His righteousness is going to be displayed whether you're the righteous or you're the wicked. His righteousness is going to be displayed whether he blesses you or curses you. God is going to be proven faithful and righteous and just regardless of how he works with you. And so let's just walk through how he says that. Step one is the more you sin, the more glory God gets. Now, does that sound counterintuitive to you? The more you sin, the more glory God gets. So just hypothetically, let's say you had, had a candle, and you lit the candle in this room right now with our current lighting. Right, how bright would that candle be? You wouldn't consider it bright at all, right? In fact, you'd kind of notice the flame, but you really wouldn't pay much attention to the light coming off of it. But what if we turned off every other light in the room how bright would the candle appear then? Well, it would, it would be the brightest thing around us. Here, here's how this is working in Romans chapter 3. The darker the room, the more apparent the glory of God becomes. So the more you sin, the more glorious God appears. 
in comparison. Now, is he changing? Is he actually getting more glorious? No. It's just your darkness emphasizes his light. That's what Paul is arguing here. Now, what's interesting is what Paul is arguing here is that's true not just for wicked people, but for who? Everyone. Because does anyone have a righteousness that would show up on the scale if God's righteousness was on that scale? No. So the question comes up, Paul has to deal with this question. Well, I mean, if your evilness and your sinfulness and your wickedness actually makes God look good, then why not just be bad? Because then the worse you are, the more glory God gets. Well, the problem with that argument is it's partly true. Because the worse you are, and the more glory God gets, ultimately, He's going to truly get glory over you in what form? The wrath of God will be poured out. You ever watch a movie where the good guys kill the bad guys? How do you feel when that happens? It gets you excited. You ever watch a movie where the good guy doesn't kill the bad guy and it's kind of disappointing? It's like, dude, why'd you let him go? Right? God is going to pour out his wrath on the wicked. And their sinfulness inherently glorified God, but his pouring out wrath on them will even further glorify God. But here's, here's what's crazy. So see Romans verse 3, 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off with this regard? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You see that? Nobody. So in the Old Testament, if our categories are, you got the wicked and you got the righteous, how many people are in the righteous category? Zero. And how many are in the wicked category? 100%. In fact, just to make this even clearer, we will go back to Malachi, I promise. Go to Revelation chapter 20. So we're just looking at this over the course of all of Scripture, that eschatological trajectory. So I want you to see what happens at the judgment at the great white throne. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found, found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. This is a very common biblical theme, that God is keeping tabs. Now, books, plural, so think volumes, volumes of books were opened. Then another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. So we got volumes of book, books, plural, and we got a book over here on the side. And it says, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So what's in the books? The big volumes of books contains what? Everything we've done, all of the evil, all of the wickedness, every way you've fallen short of the glory of God. God knows this stuff. He's kept tabs on this stuff. It is all there ready for you to be judged by. So with that in mind, flip back to Malachi, and let's see how he ends this narrative. So we already saw in verse 18 that once more, 
there would be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked at the end, and see what he says. So really, we're in the same paragraph. There shouldn't be a, a verse or a chapter distinction here. For behold, verse 1 of 4, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So what's going to happen when this day of the Lord comes? Because this is judgment day. They will burn. That's what this is. Who will burn? The wicked and the people we usually call the righteous. They're all in that category. This is what's coming. But... Verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise. Now that sun is spelled how? S-U-N. So in English, because of our wordplay there, don't hear Jesus here. The sun here is the metaphor. What's the sun do in the morning? It rises. All right, and when it rises, what comes with it? The light, which is always a biblical metaphor for goodness. And so, but for you who fear my name, the sun is going to rise. The light is going to come, and it's going to have healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, a lot of people want to read into this the resurrection, and we might could do that. But the point is what the calf is doing as it leaves the stall. Now, I don't have calves, but I do have goats and sheep, and I know what this looks like. And it's the cutest thing you can watch. I don't care how manly you are. You're going to look at that and go, oh, it's so adorable. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm, don't make fun of me. I'm, I'm telling you guys. You come over to my house and you see this, and you're going to go, oh, they're so happy. That's the cutest thing ever. And I'm like, that's why my wife brings animals home. You know. So the point is, when this day comes, this day that's supposed to be doom and gloom and destruction and wrath, Somehow, in spite of the fact that we all belong in the wicked category, there are going to be people who see the glory of God rise and shine around us and not fear it. Rather, like a newborn calf, we're just going to jump and hop around because we are excited and delighted in what is coming. How is this possible? You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soul's of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Somehow, there's hope in this condemnation. To Think back on what they accused God of at first. God, you're not treating us any better than you treat the wicked. That's not really what's going on. What's going on is God is holding back his wrath because you deserve it. You think you're the one who deserves blessing. You're not. You're not the one who deserves blessing. You're the one who deserves wrath. And in God's mercy, he has passed over our sins. He's withheld that cup of wrath. He's not poured it out on us. Some people come up to Jesus in Luke 13 and ask him about this tower that fell down and killed 18 people, and they're asking, you know, why could God let this happen? And Jesus says, well, do you think they were the worst people around and God was taking them out because they're so evil? No. You repent because you'll perish the same way. You deserve that tower to fall. 
You deserve evil to happen. We have broken God's commandment. We are the wicked in His eyes. There is none righteous, no, not one. Yet because of God's great love, He's withheld that wrath. And He took that cup of wrath that was meant for you. You know where this is going. Where did He put it? He put it on Jesus. So see how Malachi ends his book. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now the great and awesome day of the Lord is that reference to the end. But the day of Elijah is much sooner. In fact, Jesus explicitly tells us that that prophecy was fulfilled in what person? John the Baptist. This is very clear. Jesus says it directly. That that was fulfilled with John the Baptist. And what is it that John the Baptist was preparing us for? The coming of the Lord. Actually, go back to chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Skip down to verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Now, is this a statement of that final judgment that's coming? No, this is the coming of the work of Christ. That Jesus would come and take these people who were wicked, and he would refine them. Not with an actual refiner's fire, and not with actual soap. What does the New Testament tell us Jesus would use to purify his people? His blood. That's why Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood for our sins. Now, we're supposed to be at the last blank, but I think we skipped one. On the day of the Lord, God will reveal his blessings to his people and his wrath to the wicked. But in this age, the Messiah has come, granting us hope through his refining blood. And this is what Malachi has promised. Is that yes, God is going to draw a sharp line between the righteous and the wicked. Because that's only good news if you've been made righteous. Because our default state is that we are the wicked.